Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Alec Empire began his career as an agitator and noisemaker in late 80s West Berlin. Following the fall of the wall in 1989, a young empire looked to the rebellious sounds of techno, acid house, and punk to inform a new project, Atari Teenage Riot. The trio debuted in 1992 as part of Germany's rave community, but soon became known and sometimes despised for the speed, noise, and political stance of its self-styled digital hardcore sound. In 1994, Empire founded the Digital Hardcore label as a home for his and ATR's brand of punk meets dance music. In this lecture as part of the Red Bull Music Academy Basecamp Berlin 2017, Alec Empire recalled the chaos and inspiration of Berlin's reunification years, techno's transformation, and the need for music to remain political. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Herzlich willkommen, a very warm welcome to Alec Empire. Hi. The video we just saw is from 1999, I think a demonstration against the NATO invasion in Kosovo. Not invasion, it was like oh, the yeah. bombings. Bombings. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. You're right. No, it was, but it, the, the, it's not only that, I mean, the, the, the real reason for this protest, because in that year it was really different to the normal 1st May protest you see every year. Um, was because uh, in Germany many people were very concerned with the idea of Germany's active involvement in, in wars, international wars. You know, before that year, Germany never participated uh, in, in, in wars actively after the Second World War. So it was a very big deal when the Social Democratic uh, government and the Green Party introduced the option that Germany should become this powerful player again uh, in the world. So a lot of people were very angry, of course, because of the Second World War and, and so on. So I think the context is really important when we watch this video. So it's not just the 1st May uh, protest that you see every year. So it was about something for us very serious at the time. You were born 1972 in Reinickendorf, right? In uh, yeah, I mean, like I grew up, uh, there, the hospital was in Charlottenburg. Where this is where, where most West Berlin, babies in case. were born. Exactly. So sometimes there's the confusion. People look it up and go, Charlottenburg. He's like the bourgeois, uh, rich kid guy, whatever. But the, the thing is, many you know were, were born there. So um, so basically, like you were. 18 more or less when the wall came down but before that as a teenager um, seeing that well this is another 10 years later mm. and highly political but as a teenager was politics a direct influence of your creative work or was music sort of first without the politics yes no I mean for me politics and uh music were connected for my whole life I mean it's, this has something to do with 
the, the history of my family. You know, my grandfather uh, was killed in a concentration camp. So, you know, when you grow up and you ask yourself certain questions, okay, what happened? How could this happen? Uh, I grew up in, in the Berlin that was divided by a war, you know, so uh, we had some relatives in East Berlin. So it has a huge influence uh, on the way you see the world, you know, so for me, um, music had to be political. Not all music, of course, but uh, I, I thought music always plays a role. In, in, in public life, and therefore it's important what the music is about, you know, and I, I noticed very early on uh, that certain people want to take that away from music, and they are often, they have bad intentions <laughs> when they want to destroy meaning of music, and they love to sell meaningless entertainment and they go hey uh, artists should stay out of politics or they should not make a, a statement um, so I think that's very dangerous I mean we, we hear this all the time still you know I think it was it was always the case uh, that creative people were under attack because they could build a bridge to a large amount of people uh, could uh, present certain ideas that could change people's lives, actually. Um, some people might be cynical and go, yeah, but what, which song ever changed somebody's life? Maybe not the song itself, but the way you suddenly see the world in another, um, through another lens, maybe, or through another filter, is, is key here, you know? So let, let's say, to give you an example, uh, the 80s, okay, I was a uh, you know, young kid, I was really into early hip-hop music, uh, Grandmaster Flash, Africa Bombarda, that kind of stuff. It was, it was being played on the American uh, radio stations here uh, in, in Berlin, which was a, a big advantage to some of the rest of Germany, because many people in other parts of Germany didn't hear that music so early on. Uh, and I think maybe that also plays a role later on what happened with the club culture and stuff. So for me, um, listening to that music, I saw a different America than I saw on television. And I mean, Chuck D from Public Enemy said this, I think also in the 80s, it's like we try to be the, the black CNN or something like that. I, I don't exactly remember the, the quote, but it was something like that. And so this is an example of how you might have certain views about certain groups in the population. When you hear their music, suddenly maybe you you uh, develop some sort of empathy, some different understanding. You maybe you understand where they're coming from. So music is, is is very important when it comes to that. Were you aware of well either music or radio happening outside of the West Berlin island? Was there any contact? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, was, I grew up in West Berlin. It's, I think that's important to mention. So, yes, technically, in a way, I mean, we were occupied by the Americans, British and French, and, you know, then there was East Berlin. But the, the thing was, um, it felt like an island because you, the moment you drove, I don't know, like half hour or something, you, you reached the, 
the border. So, and you had to go through East Germany. So it felt very claustrophobic. Sometimes people go, yeah, but you guys were allowed to travel and you had a lot of advantages that people in the East didn't have, which is true. But uh, in everyday life, I think this, the feeling of not being able, for example, what everybody takes now for granted, to go, okay, it's summer, let's go to some lake or let's see nature, you know, what's what's outside of Berlin. That that was all closed off. You know, there was were people with machine guns <laughs> standing there guarding us. So I mean, but it was this weird thing because like I think now when we talk about immigration and, and borders and America and wars and stuff, people always think it's about people from the outside not being allowed to come in, you know, but with East and West Germany, it, it, it was such a bizarre situation where, where the population on the East was kept hostage <laughs> and couldn't leave. And, and, and you know, it, it's, yeah, a very special um, environment, I think. And that's why, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but it's probably a lot more musicians from that era think like that. I'm very sensitive to... You know, when, when the government becomes too powerful, when surveillance uh, technology is used to spy on people and, and the invasion of privacy, all these things, uh, uh, we've seen it, how bad it can get, you know. Um, so it's, that's why this matters so much to us. Talking about Berlin in the 80s, just before the wall came down, Who who is important to you? Were there any figures? Because we actually had Alexander Hacker of Einstürzende Neubauten um, speaking here just two days ago. So I'm kind of curious if that was a world that you were aware of. Sure. I mean, I was in the very early age in the sort of punk scene, uh, which the reality was, you know, you played a show in, in, in uh, squats and, uh, I mean, all the typical small punk clubs, uh, It's for some reason I was right there, like when this happened. I mean, I was 12, 13 years old, and we opened up for these punk bands, which would become very big later on. I mean, I don't know, Die Totenhosen or Die Ärzte, you know, those types of bands. And they were maybe playing to four or 500 people. And I think now some of these bands would fill maybe even a stadium, I don't know. <laughs> but it was a very small scene. Um, and But I have to say, um, what, what I didn't like, and I, I, I never liked this uh, at the time, was the, the sort of nihilism that was around. Because it, it, there was no perspective you know it, it's I mean the fascinating thing I think about the 80s in Berlin was that it felt like people couldn't that there was nowhere to go into the future and I think to me the, the music that was made in Berlin at the time really reflects that um, and I felt really different you know for me I mentioned hip-hop early on. It was this, no, we need to get out of this place. <laughs> we need to uh, do something better. We, we don't want to accept this situation. Um, and uh, this is very different to this older generation um, who was more about, okay, like, let's experiment. Let's, I don't know. I mean, okay, I think, for example, when we talk about music, I think there's one big difference between the 80s and the 90s. I think 
the 80s, and it has something to do with the computer being the central <laughs> big uh, step in evolution at some point, you know, that came in and was becoming more important. But I think the 80s was a lot about chaos and, and destruction and, and, like, I mean, banging on burning trash cans and stuff like that, which is an interesting thing in a way. But I think my generation, we were about, okay, how can we take that and control it you know how can we use technology to actually not just do something chaotic but to put a certain order to the chaos so we we do something with the audience and i think um i mean when you look at videos maybe or old film uh, from 80s concerts you don't really see a lot of people moving, for example. Very often people stand there and they maybe hold a, a beer and <laughs> or something and maybe they throw something or they shout something. But it's when you compare that to footage just, let's say, three, four years later, the big raves where you see, I don't know, 5,000 people dancing, it's, it's a huge difference. So, so the, the wall coming down in 89 is almost like it seizes the time. You know, there's like the Berlin before uh, the wall came down and then after. And, and I belong more to the generation, I think, of where, after the wall came down, even though I was already active in the music scene before. A lot of people, though, sort of have this reproach towards um, techno or specifically Berlin techno of the 90s um, that it's so like not political at all but you are saying it actually was political while people were dancing uh, I thought very in the beginning it had something uh, political about it um, and of course I declared it dead I think in early 1992 <laughs> <laughs> where, where I was, this is going in the wrong direction. Still going, I sorry. Was, yeah. It's a good question if this is the same thing that's still going. You know, I mean, it. it but maybe we get to that later. Because, okay, I mean, the, the, the reason why I was fascinated by Acid House and, and early techno, and I was one of these guys, I was like, no, we have to be anonymous, we can't have our hardest names on the records, it has to be all white labels, it has to be, you know, track titles, why even coming up with track titles, it should be numbers, you know, it should be, it should be just the music, and we are tired of the slogans and the the empty kind of political messages that at the time I really felt uh, tired of, of what was going on in, in the political left, I have to say. I mean, I, I hated the, the right, of course, but, but the, I felt like the, towards the end of the 80s, a lot of the stuff that was coming from the left in, in places like Kreuzberg and, you know, where most of these things were happening in the 80s, it was, for me, it was empty. It didn't have any meaning. You know, we saw on one side, we saw for example, the GDR collapsing and people still, I mean, you see them now still, uh, or the first May, you see people with a hammer and sickle uh, flag. And I'm like, how many more times do you want to see this stuff fail? Like, <laughs> and you're still repeating this nonsense, you know? So I was immediately like very on this sort of anarchist freedom <laughs> side like we do what we want like we we have to control everything ourselves self-determination and so on so there was this big 
conflict uh, brewing, you know. So that's why I was identifying with the early techno stuff. The problem was um, it. In the beginning, it was freaks and outsiders who loved that stuff, <laughs> and. For example, the Club Tresor opened up and they kind of imported these Detroit DJs. I think they opened in 92 or so. Yeah, I mean, like some, yeah, like end of, I think, 91 or something. At that time, it was, you know. The thing was that, let's say, Underground Resistance, Jeff Mills, all these guys, they were not what you would consider mainstream techno a few years later, you know, because they were, nobody cared about that music in America, you know, so it was this weird, almost maybe mistake in nature, an evolution, I don't know, that there is the place, Berlin, the wall is coming out, uh, coming down. Some, at some point, like there was this open space You know, it was, the governments didn't know what to do. The authorities were like, okay, who, what is this house? We don't even know who this, who owns this house, so, you know? So you would have these, these free spaces. But the music that was so relevant was not the music of the Berlin of the 80s. It was done by producers in Detroit. <laughs> And... Sometimes when, when I speak about this with friends and other musicians, in theory, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why do Germans, mostly Germans, I would say, in Berlin at the time pick music from Detroit that was done by, you know, these, these, these underground people? Why didn't they pick reggae music from Jamaica? Or... Russian or something, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> they could have picked anything, but they picked this. And it's uh, an interesting question that nobody could answer so far. But there was something, for some reason, maybe there was this connection between how people in Detroit felt and how we felt in Berlin when we saw a system collapse in front of our eyes. And everything changed. I mean, people now, maybe younger people, can't imagine what that feels like. Like, even though I was from the West, to see such a radical change happen in society. And you see, like a year earlier, people were like, no, this will go on forever. Oh, my God. You know, these, these speeches and so on. This will probably never end. It, it, it was like a definition of how in East Germany, I mean, you know, because you could see that on te television. And you go, okay. That you need to, you want to buy a car, you need to wait 20 years to get it, but everything is great still, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it, it was an absurd uh, scenario um, that didn't make any sense. So, but it didn't feel like, oh, a year later, we can go into all these warehouses and create music that actually was completely fresh and new, you know, so... So you were totally surprised when the wall came down. There was like absolutely no way that you could have felt that or that in mm. in sort of the music or art scene you anticipated that before. No, I, I, I remember there's a very good film called, I just know the German title, Flüstern und Schreien, it's called. It's about the GDR. Uh, it was like a, a documentary filmmaker who went in, into, the, uh, into East uh, Germany and filmed certain bands, interviewed them and so on. I saw that, I think, I don't know exactly when that was. It was maybe 88 or something. 
I'm, I'm not so sure. We have to look it up. But around that time, okay. And he was able to get some interviews with musicians who um, were not actually allowed to perform in public um, and, and so on. And it felt like, wow, they, these people, they, they are real kind of rebels almost. You know, because, if, I mean, people don't know. And in, in, in the GDR, you had to get this permission. You know, you had to play in front of a jury <laughs> or something, you know, a committee, you know. And then they would tell you, is that, is that okay? Is this a threat to the people or whatever? Like, you have to hand in your lyrics and so on. They would even tell you how much you're supposed to earn. A, a total nightmare, I think. <laughs> People often, I think in our age, don't understand um, these ideas, as certain ideas that are also being talked about in, in our time now. When it's like, for example, let's say, you get this all the time, right? You're a musician, there's one guy you absolutely hate this person. Like, it's, it's, a, it's shitty music, it's bad. Why is this musician earning more than I do? <laughs> It's not fair, right? I mean, I guess every musician had this at some point. It's like, this is not good. Why do people pick that? And why is this person rewarded with millions maybe of dollars or something? But anyway, what you want instead, you want what I just described, <laughs> that you have some bureaucrats sitting there. Hmm, okay, maybe you should earn 10, uh, 10 euros per hour. And your concert is an hour long, so. But this was the reality there, you know, and, and people don't, you know, <laughs> a total nightmare. So, but when you watch this documentary, for example, you don't get the sense that, I mean, these people were like, they f it felt like everybody was stuck. There was nowhere to go from there, you know. Later on, I always thought, okay, maybe when you feel like that, maybe then just changes around the corner somehow, you know? So, because I had this in other situations in my own life where I was like, okay, why is no progress? You know, ah, I want to do this. And so it's also maybe even uh, making music can be like that. You know, you, you, you feel stuck, you, you have a certain idea, and for some reason you don't get to that point. And you go, why is this machine not doing what I want? <laughs> you know, and then... Uh, but then suddenly you take a short break and then you have the idea and you go, hey, wait a minute, okay, no. <laughs> you don't tell me what to do. <laughs> it should be the other way around, you know. Um, I want to play a bit of music um, in, in a minute. Um, mm. But one question before, what do you just, so like the, the video we watched in the beginning and then you speaking about the techno scene and Treasure, I think to a lot of people, um, either from a perspective not coming from Berlin or from a perspective just like knowing the music scene nowadays, um, thinking about punk and squats or maybe a very political, um, being very political and techno being one thing that is, you know, for a lot of people that doesn't go together at all that like punk and techno would be would be one, but it always was for you. Yeah, it 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 was an option for me. Um, very, I mean, okay, when I was in the techno underground, um, I, I I noticed something very early on. I didn't like that at all, and it was this. Okay, we have to escape reality. You know, we're in this club or in this, at this rave or whatever. And you even hear this. I mean, if you, if you look at uh, old interviews, maybe, footage, people say, you know, for a few hours, I want to 
leave my life behind and so on. Escapism, yeah. Exactly. So, and, and I guess that's still the same thing for most people, maybe, who go to a club, take drugs, they don't, they want, they don't want to worry or something about other stuff that is happening in their lives. To, to me, that was always very strange. I, I was like, oh, let's confront what we don't like in our lives. <laughs> we need to solve the problems. For example, uh, racism, okay? Like, back in the day, um, what we saw was like, uh, when the wall came down, and this led to a Thai teenage riot, the band, uh, very fast, because we saw that there was, there were a lot of neo-Nazis in, in the east of Germany, of course, during the G in the GDR, like these people didn't exist because everybody was a socialist. Of course, you know. <laughs> so um, after the war came down, suddenly you saw all these like and, and extremely violent. Like I, I mean, I was in in, in fights with uh, Nazi skinheads in in, the, in West Berlin, for example. But they were compared to the guys from the East. They were like. Yeah, it was like if you watch maybe a movie like Quadrophenia, you know, it was like mods versus rockers and versus punks. It was like, yeah, you you had sort of like a street fight, but it was not about, hey, I'm going to, you're on the floor, I'm going to stamp on your head until you're dead. You know, like, I mean, it wasn't that kind of, <laughs> you know. It's, Actual violence. Yeah, I mean, stuff like this also happened, but it wasn't the majority. I think the what what was the difference was like that there was like a, such a militant right, like far right wing in the East where we were like, okay, this is a totally different level of, of a threat because, you know, like, I mean, we saw these attacks on uh, asylum uh, homes, you know, like um, stuff like that. And, you know, what you do, like, right, I mean, this stuff happens, you hear about, it, you're shocked, you know, they, I mean, they're throwing firebombs through windows and there's like babies in the room, you know, and you go, I mean, which person, uh, you can disagree with the politics as much as you want, but it, that's, there's no uh, legitimization for, for this behavior. I mean, sorry, you know, like, it's, <laughs> I, I, we were outraged. We go to the clubs, to the raves, and people are like, yeah, it's a bit bad, but now let's, let's have a party, you know, and this kind of thing drove me crazy. I was like, wait a minute, this is happening outside, and you're just pretending, suddenly uh, these, these sort of like people I also know, knew from the punk scene, because a lot of the early techno guys were coming from the punk scene in the 80s, suddenly they behaved like these hypocritical hippies, you know, who were like, no, like, come on, peace, you know, like, let's, let's, let's have a party, we don't want this, and it reminded me of these, I mean, maybe you know this, you go to, a, like, a, like, a family uh, thing or something, and uh, there's a disagreement about politics, and suddenly there's always, there's a few family members who go, let's not talk about I don't know, Donald Trump or something like that, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I think everybody knows this. And it was the same, like, family kind of weird peer pressure thing to, to sweep stuff under the carpet that, you know, and I thought, this is, this is bad. And I actually make the direct link to the, what happened at the Love Parade in 2010, you know, like, where, how people never confronted those people who, who organized this stuff, never hold them accountable, you know, like, or responsible. There was always this weird, 
herd mentality, you know, and it, it's, it, I always felt threatened by that. Um, What happened at the Love Parade in 2000? Was it 2010? Yes, I think when it was in West Germany, is that people got um, well, people stamped to death, got stamped to death, yeah. actually. Um, but talking about the Love Parade, I think coincidentally, the first Love Parade was just before the wall came down in '89, under this um, well, in, in famous motto, Friede, Freude, Eierkuchen, just sort of like peace, love, pancakes, or whatever. So, so were you? opposed to that happening no 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 I, i was at these events i loved it i mean like for example i've, I've okay imagine this all my friends were punks okay at the time i was the only guy i was even the only guy in my school like who listened to this music and people were like why do you what are you listening to there's just like a boom 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 like i don't know and is somebody singing at some point i mean now it sounds like a cliche joke but it was like that These were the normal types of people who listened to whatever rock music. The punks, like my punk friends, saw it immediately as a threat. They were like, hey, this is, this is like, this is computer music, this is dehumanized and blah, 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 you know, and they, this is capitalistic and so on, you know, so... Um, Uh, um, and, and so there was this really hostile en environment where where everybody hated that music. And for example, this, I, in my opinion, I mean, this is how I treated the first love parade, maybe the first two, three ones that I went to. It was for me like almost like a trigger, you know. I was like, "Hey, you know, we are doing this protest. You want to come? Like, what is it about? You know, is it against?" Starbucks or whatever <laughs> you know it's like no it's about this people would they, they would you know their faces would turn red this doesn't mean anything you're making a mockery of our movement and so on so and I always loved that I mean I always I mean maybe <laughs> if you look at my discography and stuff I always love offensive stuff <laughs> you know like also I mean I, I always, as a DJ, I loved uh, collecting records with like the, the weirdest sleeve designs or, you know, the artwork or even the, the, the music itself, like anything that would kind of trigger people and because you confront them with something that is against their the way they view the world, you know, because I think music, this is the danger, I think, about music. It can become a soundtrack to, 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 to traditions and rules, you know, and I mean, like, for example, we know it from, let's say, the, the military, you know, everybody marches to, to the same rhythm. Um, it's, so it, it can be used to make, uh, to create conformity. The weird thing is, if you look at certain uh, footage of, of raves, a little bit later in the 90s, they, we always call it like marching music because a lot of people dance almost like the same way, you know? And it, it's, I was like, wait, this is weird. This is before that was kind of slightly chaotic and, and everybody was free. And, and then suddenly you had to dress a certain way. This was the, the dance moves you were allowed to make. And it was, to me, that was, that was just really boring. And then, of course, at some point when this dominated culture, we, we felt this was similar to cultural fascism almost, <laughs> you know, because we felt there's no room, no freedom anymore because the DJs were like, 
this is how you have to arrange your tracks so they get played. Before that, the DJs were looking for records they could play <laughs> in, in a way that they were like, okay, I have to actually get involved. I don't want the records to be easy to play. I mean, you want good records, of course, but you... It, it was a challenge when you saw a good DJ. It's like, wow, he's mixing that record with that. I, I wouldn't even have thought of that, you know. But then it became like, okay, it has to be at this tempo. It has to. This is the, you know, the the intro. You have to leave that length in the beginning, so it's easy to. to and I was like, this is becoming just uh, rules. It's there was there was less options than ever before. And this this is always when I'm kind of out you know i'm like okay this is not for me so you guys can go ahead but <laughs> i was thinking to play a track of your uh digital hardcore um release the actual the um single called uh digital hardcore um should okay. we play pleasure is our business hey there at this point in the lecture they played some music unfortunately due to copyright reasons we can't play that here yeah um bum too Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to Couch Wisdom. Okay, why do you play this one? <laughs> okay. <laughs> actually, actually, um, sort of as a tongue-in-cheek comment on what we were talking about earlier that you said, um, well, the, the way that people were sort of perceiving pleasure or someone showing pleasure at the dance floor was kind of, you know, it, it was a difficult thing, and this track was called uh, Pleasure is Our Business. And you sort of... Well, you're saying that that is what we're actually doing. We are we are playing for pleasure, and that doesn't mean that we're not political. But when I say uh, we at the time, obviously, this was around when you started playing with Atari Teenage Riot. Yeah. Like, I mean, this track was from 1994. I mean, it was done in 1993, end of 1993. This is the first release on digital hardcore recordings. Which is, yeah, I don't know what the question was, but it's, I think it's important because at that point I was like, okay, I'm the anti-techno guy, you know, like I, I was, we were all dressed in complete black, we, we were, I mean, the only link back into the techno scene was we were doing these raids with uh, the Spiral Tribe at Potsdamer Platz when they were, you know, they, had, they had to flee England, they came first to Berlin and we hooked up and, and made these kind of like why did uh, they have to areas. flee England because of the criminal justice bill and because I mean they were doing these illegal raves uh, in, in, in fields and yeah uh, the government wanted to crack down on this stuff uh, because it. I mean there's a, there's a, a really good chapter in the book uh, by Simon Reynolds uh, Energy Flash where he did an interview with me a year later, and I've and then he took a lot of the the stuff I told him, and then he described it very well. And he did some more research, and it, it was interesting how the the brewing companies, <laughs> Red Bull, no, but I mean it was like beer companies, alcohol companies actually, who didn't like the rave scene. You know, for them it's like, what are these people drinking? They drink water and energy drinks. They they don't consume our stuff so and they take some pills or whatever so and they it, they saw it as a threat to their business because before rock fest there was beer everywhere alcohol you know so it was there was like a, a, the bigger picture was quite interesting how i mean because these these uh, raves were big you know, it was like 10 20000 people in some cornfield somewhere you know so it a lot of people saw like their their businesses uh, you know like going down maybe or like uh, if this 
grows further, it will take over, you know. So you brought them to Berlin and did race with them? No, I didn't them. bring them. They, they, they left uh, with all their trucks. They had trucks and stuff. They were like kind of like... I mean, yeah, they, they called themselves the Spiral Tribe and they were like a sort of like tribal kind of Yeah, they played thing. in places like ex-Yugoslavia yeah, yeah, and did like they raves. Went after. Where, yeah, they yeah. went to further east, yeah. When Potsdamer Platz, they, they started building what you see now, the the Sony Center and all this stuff. It ah, was like yeah. a wasteland. I mean, I, uh, you know, at that time, I remember we were making music that it was like, it, it was the old part you know the wall was not just actually one wall there was like um you know some space in between when Total if Streifen. you would climb the first fence or something then you have to uh, run over like certain uh, landmines and they could shoot you in the back like and then you know so and this is where they parked the trucks and this was also where like right around the corner where Trezor was the old Trezor you know Trezor had more and Hansa Studios and yeah like all this yeah like now I mean if you it's quite interesting if you are at Sony Center um, there is like I don't know if you when you walk in from the from the um, U-Bahn station there's like an old there's like an architecture um, thing where a very old building is like integrated with all this modern stuff. And this building was there, like sort of like ruins of it or something. And imagine us parking the trucks around there and hanging out, doing a campfire. It was a very Mad Max. I mean, I have to say, it was, it was like all sand. We had to watch the machines that they don't get, uh, not so much sand is getting into them and stuff. It was a good uh, good time. <laughs> and uh, talking about the Tari Teenage Riot again, was there like was Hanine Lia sort of part of your crew or before you started making music together? You know each other first. Yeah, I mean, I I ran into her uh, actually when the war. I mean, in those days when the war came down, it was I. <laughs> I, I was, you know, like everyone, you kind of climbed around and then people were demolishing the wall and there was, you know, it was a very exciting uh, time the first weeks uh, after that. So, and I saw uh, saw her and a friend, I mean, I saw two people in, in full astronaut uh, outfits, like the helmets, so on. And it was her and some other guy. So, and I was like, hey, like... <laughs> Who are you? And I always had this idea. I want to start this this group. Um, I want to bring punk, the energy of punk, together with like at the time it was more like acid house and hip hop. So um, and it yeah, it it seemed like she was on board uh, with that. And then I've you know I remembered Kyle Crack who was kind of like from my area uh, where I grew up. So um, and I recruited him. It, I mean, it, it was really, I, I, I used the word recruiting because it, I mean, now, uh, for example, Carl, he uh, told me later on, it was like very strange. I approached him in this public space. I saw him. I was like, hey, this is the mission. We're going to create music to fight fascism. Are you in or not? You know, and he's like, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> okay, like, <laughs> let's, let's go, you know. So, because I was, at that time, I have to add, I was really tired of the... The sort of anti-fascist action stuff, like the the, the street fights, the the the. the I, I thought, okay, we need to. This doesn't go anywhere. We need to do something else. We need to use computers. 
like we need to use the technology and in, try to influence the minds of people. You know, we have to spread the message and through music in a way. So it it it's, these two things kind of came together. That's why I picked music. You know, I was like this. We can fight until the end of days. You know, the stronger person maybe will win, but you don't change somebody's mind. You know, I think it's it's a very relevant thing these days again because I think a lot of people they get frustrated when they face an opposition. Let's you know, it doesn't even have to be neo Nazis, but. And of course, you you don't have the patience. You hear some dumb stuff, <laughs> and you hear it over and over again. And maybe these people are in the majority, and you go, "Let's is there a shortcut?" Maybe. So, and a lot of people go, you know, they, they pick violence. They go, "I just want to smash this guy's head in." But this is not the way to solve this problem, you know. So, and at the time, we were like, "Okay, this is." We need to bring a lot of people together, and the old music just didn't work anymore. You know, it's, it's the punk rock stuff from ten years earlier sounded very dated, and it, it didn't sound like our generation. So, should we listen to a tiny bit of uh, Hetzjagd of Nazis to stay in them? I mean, this recording is actually from 1993. And this ended up on the on the album, which was released in 1995. This was the live recording. We played a, a really big show in Berlin at the time. Um, you know, you hear it, the audience was a lot of people. So, but the 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 12 inch actually came out a year earlier, in 1992, and that's I think the, the for a lot of people that was the the key song in a way because there were these attacks uh, on asylum homes and and they, where the police deliberately delayed like their arrival they didn't help these people i think they came like an hour later the population applauded while neo nazis threw these these molotov cocktails uh, into these through the windows and so horrible stuff and Now looking back, I mean, maybe it's hard to understand now for people who are younger, but the way we felt was like this, okay? Germany was separated and, and divided for good reason, because of Nazi Germany and the Second World War. So when Germany got reunified... And we saw a lot of the German flags everywhere. And a lot of people were talking about, we need to find our patriotism again. And then every time you, you say this stuff, or you hear this stuff, like you hear these other voices. Yeah, but what about nationalism? And, and then, you know, like you hear these, these dark <laughs> kind of evil people come out of the, the holes and they... they go, hey, but we are one people again, you know, and, and so on. And it... it might sound okay to to people now but at the time it was when when people said this stuff it was about excluding minorities most of the times so it was like okay you don't look german you don't belong here and so on you know i mean now i think germany over the last 20 30 years tried to give itself a different image You know, let's see how how good that will work out during the next elections because you see the same kinds of voices they're getting louder again. You know, since a few years, but um, 
So our fear was, and it was a, um, it, I wouldn't say it was paranoid, but we thought there is actually a, a danger of Germany slipping back into, you know, you have this bad combination of Eastern Germany, you know, with where people had a lot of weird education, you know, what they believed about the world and, and so on and 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 how the, the individual doesn't matter and so on. And then you have these far-right people in the West who loved this, you know, they were like, yes, now we are, we are somebody again, you know, now Germany is the, you know, this powerful force in Europe and we can tell other countries what to do and so on. So, and for us, there was always this fear, is this is maybe we're going backwards in time because the mentality, what we saw in the streets and how people behaved was not like, okay, now we're open to the rest of the world. Now, great, now we can, you know, the other half of the country can travel. We can, this is great, like, you know, there's more freedom now. We saw a lot of people who, who saw the future of Germany very different. And so when you see this, this footage on television where neo-Nazi skinheads attack these houses the police doesn't come to help. And the, the rest of the population applauds this. For us, this was like the point where we're like, okay, now it, it is getting serious. It, it, this is not some, you know, some very small group of radical uh, neo-Nazis. Now this is, this, these ideas, they be, are becoming more mainstream again. And I think what is interesting, a lot of people, when we released this, because it caused, I mean, it, it, it put us on the blacklist of most raves. People were like, how dare you? What is this? You can't, you know, this, this message even, you know. Some and of your music is on the German index, which means that you can't play it on the radio and can't sell it. You shouldn't yeah. have even played it now. <laughs> Oh, we can. We're in a closed space. Yes, so exactly. That's all right. Okay. I checked before, actually. But it's still public in a way. <laughs> yeah, okay. So. But uh, Deutschland has got to die. Um, that's also, that's another, you yeah. Cannot I mean, play, the, the, yeah. <laughs> which is another track by them. Yes. Uh, so, uh, where were we? So, yeah, but so this is why we felt like that. Okay. So, and, and for us, I think what is interesting, this, this track from 1992, this is on, a, I think it's, it's a 170 BPM or something. Um, uh, uh, it doesn't have four to the floor bass drums because at that point we, was, we were going, okay, techno as we knew it led to this really bad mainstream version of it because everybody understood this kind of dumb four-to-the-floor rhythm because also there was less funk at that point in, in, in the techno stuff, I have to say. Uh, maybe now when people look back, they always look at, yeah, there was Chicago House and there was Detroit and they look at the good stuff, that, you know, which is good, you know, but this, this was like tiny, like it, it was like the cherries on... on on this ice cream of shit. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's where, where it was horrible, horrible stuff. I mean, I, I remember um, having conversations with people in the record industry, uh, the, like the old school record industry, you know, they were like telling me, look, Alec, the Germans can never dance to funk rhythms like that. 
they need the four to the four bass drum. Did someone actually say that? To yeah, you? yeah, who not was even that? one. This was this was the this was. I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you would go through the archives of old interviews with DJs, they would even say that. It, they weren't even ashamed to say it. They thought we got it figured out. This is what the German likes. And, you know, and then there was, uh, <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny, but it's like you saw, I mean, uh, um, I remember um, the Love Parade, I think it was 93, um, where the BBC, uh, I mean, they, you know, at that point, like a lot of the international press paid attention to the Love Parade and, and to techno in Berlin and Germany and so on. Because it, 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 uh, it was different to to uh, the dance music stuff in England, for example, or France. So, and I remember the BBC, every time they did a report, they came to Berlin, about the clubs, you know, whatever. They, I think maybe because my name starts with A, they had me on this list and they were always, okay, there's this one guy who disagrees with everything. <laughs> we need to be a kind of objective. So let's call Alec up, you know? And I mean, uh, at that time, I remember in the, during the Love Parade, um, there was like these these DJs, Mark Spoon. I don't know if you know this guy. Like he hung out with uh, uh, Böse Onkels, which was this uh, really kind of. I mean, they used to be a neo-Nazi skinhead uh, band, and they became more like a far-right rock band or whatever. Like so, you had a lot of these DJs. They were suddenly really proud that uh, the Germans we have our music now. And these people were proud of that. I mean, it wasn't like it. They were um, okay. The way I understood techno was like this. Okay, suddenly we can network with everybody around the world who shares that vision of you know everybody can participate in this, right? I mean, it's you have the technology. It's about your mind. It's you know, it's not about physical strength, maybe that you need to play drums or whatever. It's just about like the ideas, and everybody is is part of that. It's like a new, more like globalized, maybe international uh, kind of music movement. And I think this is how techno also spread. I think everybody joined in. They were like, oh, like hey, we can become a part of this. Suddenly you have people from Brazil or like wherever, Japan and so on. Um, but there was this other narrative um, and that went like this. Okay, we were oppressed after the Second World War. The culture from America, from England was forced upon us. You know, this is not our music, not our identity. Then craft work came. And Kraftwerk gave birth to techno. Then they do this jump. Maybe they include Giorgio Moroder some, somehow. You know, Munich. And there was Munich. Okay, there was not only Kraftwerk. And then they make this jump to techno. And they leave out funk music, hip hop, everything that influenced techno. And I think you see this narrative if you read websites or books nowadays. Watch out for this narrative. I think it's very common that people repeat this. Um, and I think they're missing out what techno was about in the beginning and what it should have been about the decades afterwards. Including what you said earlier, that actually there were a lot of, in the um, American sector, there were a lot of American radio stations that played music 
sort of buy GI DJs and four GIs in Berlin, also in the area around Frankfurt, Wiesbaden, Hanau, um, where you had a lot of US army bases and that them actually playing funk kind of, you know, formed one of the many, I guess, um, sources that German techno developed from. But um, that aside, also in the mid 90s, you decided to relocate to London or at least yes, partly relocated to, to there. Right. You had to because you could not deal with living in Germany anymore? No, I uh, didn't want to uh, join the, I, I didn't want to do the National Army Service. Uh, I was, I, you know, the thing, I mean, I don't know if that's even interesting, but okay, it was like this. In Berlin, you were, you didn't have to go to the army uh, because we were occupied, you know. So, <laughs> so you, when people, from, let's say in Western Germany, didn't want to go, they sometimes escaped to West Berlin, and it was this kind of weird gray area where, yes, the police could find them, arrest them, and so on, and force them, but. I was the first generation where they said, okay, the wall is down, you guys have to go. You know, and they really wanted everybody to go. I mean, there were people in wheelchairs who had to go. And I had to cannot do imagine you in the army. No, no, no. I'm really, uh, um, I mean, I, I, was <laughs> I was so, I could not believe this. I, I was like, no. Like, I'm not supporting the army. Like, not especially not this army. <laughs> like, I mean, the German army. Like, I'm, it's not like... I would never hold a gun to somebody's head. Like, uh, you know, this is not me. I'm not a pacifist in that way. But I was like, this country killed my grandfather. If I should fight for this guy. I should die for this country. For what does it actually stand for? You know, I still have a problem with that. Because now, because I feel... People talk about this, what does Germany mean? You know, what should we teach the immigrants? Like what, you know, and so on. The, but I don't really hear strong values. I think, for example, the Americans are at another level when it comes to that. You know, like they, they, are, it, it, they founded the country on certain values because everybody was a settler, basically. You know, so in Germany, yeah, where's that line? Yeah, this genetically like you, you are like an I don't know an Aryan a Viking whatever you know I don't know where is that line that people draw you know so I think it's very important to 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 make it clear what do we stand for as a country but then I'm going why do I even care about Germany I've felt European all my life you know so it's this conflict maybe of my generation uh, but I really feel this conflict for me, I've, I never felt German at all. Like I feel European, if I even feel like that. Uh, um, but it will also may, maybe that can change. You know, if Europe becomes something that I can't agree with at all anymore, then I wouldn't even feel like that anymore. So, and I think also, I mean, for example, what uh, many people told me um, was kind of interesting. I think now. People always say, um, let's say internationally, you go to Japan or America or something, and they go, you know, you this is so German. Like you are so. I mean, you're the you're the definition of this German 
let's tear everything down like a radical guy or something you know so and I'm like it's weird because nobody in German would actually give me a credit like that you know they would go no you move you know move somewhere else you know and a lot of people were happy when I was in England uh, they, they were like ah oh, this guy is gone now we can move on and there's not this critical voice all the time because for a while I still felt part of the techno scene I always thought hey like everybody should speak about the truth you know for example i remember in 94 i think it was 94 95 the first sexual assaults were happening at the love parade unthinkable before but it was like let's not talk about this it's like wait a minute there are, it's getting bigger and suddenly these drunken guys assault these girls every, i mean this is, it was like larger numbers you know and i was like This needs to, you need to address this. You need to at least say, this is not what we want here. It's like, yeah, well, but um, we have these sponsor, uh, sponsorship deals. And uh, Alec, well, why? You're putting us in a bad mood again. You know, it's, it was this kind of vibe at the time. So, but um, I think if you don't take care of these kind of problems, they will destroy your scene, I think. How critical were you about the music industry at that point? Because you formed what we heard, what we listened to earlier was sort of the, 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 the first release on digital hardcore recordings. So it was for you, like right from the beginning, very important to have your own label. But then you also yeah. released on Mill Plateau and later you released on the Beastie Boys um, label, Grand yeah, Royal. I released on many labels also. There's a lot of white label stuff uh, that was under different names and so on. I did a lot of stuff, yeah. So, so what's the question? What I did? Did I like the music industry? No, <laughs> that's a very broad question. But I'm wondering, you being well critical of politics in many ways, did it matter to you to stay in a certain underground place? Because Atari Teenage Right became really famous, mm. and you played big festivals, you toured the world, you played mm. the US as much as Japan, etc., and released on well the Beastie Boys label, but still a very big label at that time was that did that ever pose a problem for you or a conflict no. no because i'm not um uh, yeah i mean i think the, okay if, if somebody in a more political environment would ask me that question they always mean hey wait a minute you are some sort of leftist guy and this is against your principles or something right i mean this i mean i'm not, I'm not saying that, that you're asking the question but, if, but yeah. for me uh, to explain that and i made that clear like right from the start like independence is super important um you have to control your career and for me for example selling a lot of records wasn't a, a compromise or something bad um Of course, you always hear this, you know, like there's like, let's say you have, you, you start out, you have these fans, they love you, okay, they're there with their, the first shows and it's, you need these people, right? I mean, they're, they're great. And then comes to the point, suddenly you, your audience is way bigger and they go, hey, you know, I went to the concert and Alec didn't even see me or something, you know, so, and then it becomes like, A lot of people who were there, like in more in the underground times, they get they can get really mad, and then this whole thing starts. Yeah, it's they sell out, and now you know it's 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 just commercial music and so on. Which is I, I don't know. I can only do the music I honestly want to make, and 
I can't think like that. So I can't go, I make something less good or, or less of something just in order to sell more records or less records or something. So I think as a musician, nobody should actually uh, think like that. I think what, 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 but what is important, I think, that you avoid certain repetition because I think that's a trap. What, what, what happens, I think, with a lot of musicians, um, they, they succeed with, uh, let's say, one track, right? It becomes their track, it's a famous track, so on. So you get into this vicious cycle because I think no musician actually fully understands why it was that track or that track. That's my, my theory. Like some people are going to go, yeah, but I did this and then I thought about getting these blonde bikini women in the video and I did made that move and, th and this, of course, then it became a big hit. I think that we see tons of productions like that and they don't become a hit. <laughs> so it's, I think it's, it's, it's a very chaotic environment and you can't control every person. What do they like? What will they like? What will they like at that point in time when your record comes out and so on? So it, it's an environment that you can't really control 100%. So that's why I think you need to stick to yourself. Like to, to, you need to say, this is what I want. I want to make progress. I want to make, I want to challenge myself. I have different ideas. So I think a lot of the times when people try to repeat something, a success of the past, it never fully works. You can ride the wave a little longer, maybe. But I, I always, I never trusted that. Like, um, so I think that's why every time I put something out, um, you would see maybe now on, on social media, fans who loved the previous record, they get mad and so on. But I know this since the early 90s. So I sold out tons of times to certain people's minds. Uh, I think what you need to do, I think, is uh, also as a music fan, you need to you need to set certain um, you need to measure it somehow. Okay, and I, I think you can measure stuff. Let's say if you have a track like this track you just played, "Hunt Down the Nazis." Okay, um, yeah, it is. It is very fast uh, breakbeats at the time. It's 92. You know, the British stuff was all at 140 at the time. 30 BPM fast. It felt like absolute chaos to most people at the time. Now we're used to this kind of tempo a bit better. Uh, but then the, the all the synth stuff was, was a, a direct influence. I never uh, hit that from people from underground resistance. They used these kind of... Um, Uh, uh, Roland machines like the MC202 and the 101 and uh, 303 in this very certain type of way, very aggressive way. And I was like, okay, if we pair this with the sped up breakbeats, this would be something interesting. So I think don't be afraid to combine things in a new way. Um, and yeah, and, and so, but that means you might offend some people and you some people they expect you to deliver certain stuff but you're not their slave so and i think that's really important for me for example like with uh, as a dj i remember i was like yeah I, i do my set and there is always this kind of 
interaction with the crowd, I think the ideal DJ set is an interaction where you you move with the audience together, and but there, you need to sometimes push them in certain directions. You can't just only play what what they want to hear. It's, I think that we see that in EDM, right? I mean, in, in American, mostly American, I guess EDM. People turn up with their USB stick. It's a pre-recorded DJ set because it has to sync up with the fireworks and the light show. So there is no interaction. There's nothing. It's 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 a top-down hierarchy. It's they feed the music to an audience, and the original idea of of DJing and techno. Uh, you could maybe even argue house and so on, but I've, let's just speak about techno. That's not that idea you need to you need to change your set while you're doing it you need to you need to manipulate it's like surfing a wave you know you need to navigate and you you cannot repeat the same thing again you know what i mean it's like if you see a rock band let's say they they play their songs maybe they play them a little bit faster or slower depending on how they feel but i think it uh, a DJ set should be a musical statement and it should not just be, okay, I just play some music to people and then uh, I'm on my laptop uh, surfing the internet. And it's, I think it's a very dangerous thing. It, it, it's, people say now maybe there's more money in, in uh, electronic music, in, in especially events maybe. I think this laziness can bring the whole thing to fall. Because you need the, the music always comes first. You know, if there's not the creation, the rest becomes meaningless. You know, so people need to focus on that. And I, many DJs disagree with me on this point. They think they should be the entertainer. They should be. They want this sort of fame, maybe, to be on a stage and on Instagram, and you see the photos with the big crowd cheering and stuff. But they see themselves as servants, like uh, they serve the audience. I, I think um, I never saw it like that, you know. Very early in our conversation today, you talked about wanting to manipulate people's thoughts. And with becoming more successful later, did it ever get to a point where you felt like you may be manipulating people too much? No, or how, no, no. So I yeah. think that was a misunderstanding. I never, didn't want to manipulate people's thoughts. I, I wanted to take control over the sounds so people's minds, they would at least maybe, they, they would hear something else They would and they would maybe look at the world in a different way. I, I don't think you can manipulate people like that. You can, cannot like go, here's a song, Okay, I put it to you like this. Uh, I said very early on, I keep repeating this, when people ask me, what's your music supposed to do? And the, the first answer is, the music has to make people think. This is what it's supposed to do. It, and, it, it, so that, and that means, I think, music is always a reflection of somebody's values. Okay, Even if they're not um, uh, aware of that. If you if you hear certain music and it it doesn't you can't agree with that with the values, you will not like it. It's as simple as that. Um, and 
Yeah, and that's, I think, what music is. Uh, so you need to, if you want to make a political statement, and and it's, I speak for myself, I say my opinion, if people can agree with that, and they often do, um, but I can't tell people, listen to this song, you must now think like I do. And I, by the way, like I'm very different to the industrial generation that came was in the 80s where it was a, it was a lot about presenting power you know it was a lot people sometimes say yeah but there's a Titina Schwartz I can pass stuff is it not a bit like ministry and nine engineers all this stuff and I'm like no it's actually completely opposite maybe some distortion sounds similar or something but for us it's when we use noise, for example, we never use noise as punishment. We always use noise as a sort of euph euphoria. It's like if you if you speed up everything, and the, it's like a sort of information overload. At some point, it ends in this this noise with a lot of overtones, and your brain, you know, it's it's very exciting if you if you if you experience that, like really experience that. It's, 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 it, yeah, it's like the peak of a musical uh, experience. <laughs> so, and, but in a lot of industry, it's like, da, 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 you know, I mean, they even perform like that on stage, most of these acts. So it's, it's, it's almost like it's, I mean, sometimes I can like uh, music like that, but it has nothing to do with what we do. I'm going to play just a tiny bit of you and uh, Mertzbo. I wanted to play this not at last. Um, it's a live recording, by the way. Uh, from, from CBGB's. In New York, yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know if people remember that club. Do you know what CBGB's is, that club? No? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, you didn't, right? I mean, okay. So, yeah, you know. He doesn't. No, okay, CBGB's was this, is this le legendary punk club in New York where a lot of, I know, punk started maybe. Is that, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the punk purist could would argue with me, but Ramones, Blondie, Richard Hell, all these people, Suicide, all these people played in that club. It was not a big club. It was like, I think maybe 400 people fit in there. It's closed now. But at the time we went in there and did this show together, which was um, very unusual for this club because it's usually it's related. Um, I mean, Patty Smith. Or, yeah, it was yeah. punk stuff, you know, so... Very violent kind of show in terms of the music. Some people vomited, <laughs> and it was very loud. This guy uh, Mertzbo, he's a, a legendary noise guy from Japan. Like I, I love his stuff. Uh, he's done hundreds of releases, um, and uh, we worked together on some stuff. And but this live recording at that time, we did a few like shows together where I was on turntables and I had a few machines and. He was he has had at the time these weird instruments like all analog uh, noise stuff and so yeah so so we did these these show together and we actually did the first show in Berlin when what was the club called it was some club in Mitte that I mean the the building is totally different now so I forgot the name we 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 turn up. We, 
it's, it's a packed club. Everybody's like, oh my God, these two people now, they're going to play. And we're like, yeah, this is going to be great. And we start. And after like, I think one minute, the whole PA was blown and <laughs> it was like a huge disappointment. But then we were, we were in, in Osaka in, in Japan uh, a few months later, did it there. That was also great. But then CBGB's in New York was recorded and that was that live recording. It's, it's an, yeah, it's an interesting, um, snapshot, I think, of where we were at the time because my stuff was getting more noisy and I was really uh, connected with the Japanese noise scene that I loved. I think they were very innovative. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's an underrated scene, I think, in the West. Um, the Japanese scene, they were, they were real innovators. I mean, they, they, they push stuff so far. I, I remember I was in, um, I think, yeah, 95, uh, I was in Japan and I was DJing and all these guys said, ah, I want to open up for Alec. And I was like, okay, yeah, cool. Like I knew some of them uh, and Mertzboer I knew and KG Haino and people like that. But we were in in the old liquid room in, in Tokyo and it was at the time it was like on the I think 14th floor or something and that to me was already an amazing thing to okay you have these you know I don't know a thousand people go in an elevator there were 10 people fit in they go to this top floor and then I experienced this um, how people went absolutely crazy I mean for noise I mean the, the beats you're hearing there is these are my beats, okay, from my part. But they were just playing really like noise. I mean, like pure noise. And it was, you saw these people stage diving and flying. And I mean, and I was like, okay. Uh, you know, it was funny, like, because I was starting to get a bit depressed about Berlin and about, yeah, techno and another death of a music movement and it's we always will fail and I end up in Japan I see this I'm like okay this is like uh, the future I mean okay it didn't turn out to be the future but it was very <laughs> exciting oh who knows maybe in, in 50 Everything years time in the future at some exactly, point so. exactly so maybe um, people they will have enough of the song structures that's still my my bet um, so far that people get tired of the same thing and Maybe noise. Uh, <laughs> the door is open, you know, people just need to go through that door and have a good time. <laughs> so I also wanted to play it just to um, give people an idea of the actually very big variety of things that you were doing at the in the in the late 90s. I mean, you also worked with Björk and released Björk, which oh, okay. I think is like super surprising for some people maybe. And I want to play um, a bit of this uh, Game Boy only <laughs> double album that I know you've talked about many times, but um, it also kind of I sparked. I, maybe 12, 15 years know. ago. <laughs> Not many times. It's just a joke. Okay, but go on. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this was from that that it's okay a lot of the, okay <laughs> what i often liked at I'm the time i'm happy that it makes you so happy too. no because it's there is something okay we talked about all the serious topics but there's also the the fun stuff is often the, the trolling that's what we i mean what, how i call it i mean that, and there was a lot of examples and that's maybe one example it was um there was the Game Boy, uh, there was like a little software uh, created uh, for it. You could have three three sounds at the same time. Like it sounded like if you ever saw 
Space Invaders or something like that. You know, it's, it's a dee, 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 dee. okay. So I mean, you heard a bit of that, but this is actually three Game Boys running at the same time, out of sync and chaos. But thing, okay. So this program was on the market, and we were like, hey, and there was already in the underground scenes like, hey, this is cool. Like, you can do something with it. And I was like, yeah. And I released like this double gatefold vinyl uh, record from that with only Game Boy stuff. This, this actually, this video is she got this from YouTube. A, a director I knew did this kind of fun video at the time. It was part of a VJ mix that was on television uh, during the night, and he played actually three tracks on top of each other. So it's a bit more chaotic than the record is. But then on the on the back uh, there was this whole. Uh, description like a total disc. I mean, I have to say we mastered all our records in the 90s and even the, the decade later at Abbey Road uh, in England, in London. And, you know, it's like this, I mean, it's a bit uh, childish, but a lot of the titles were like these anti-Beatles titles and stuff. And I actually, the mastering engineer, older guy, super nice guy who mastered all this, our stuff with us. And he was like, like I, I can't I can't do this here like I, I can't even put this in the computer like this is an insult to everybody <laughs> what are you doing you know like the Beatles were the greatest band of all time and I was like yeah but now the Game Boy you have to understand the Game Boy is replacing your old history this Game is Boy's done replacing the Beatles. you know now music will be squeezed into a little gadget I mean now it's maybe not as funny because you have the, the iPhone and, and, and the smartphone. <laughs> but at the time, people were like, no, 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 no. This is not what music would sound like. So a lot of, I mean, what we didn't speak about yet was like at the time when I started, um, the, the small hacker community in Berlin, was that, that was really part also of, of like my scene in a way. So often... Yeah, it was also about, okay, we test something, we do something uh, like that maybe. Of course, it has to be a double vinyl record master, the Abbey Road. And you send this out to all the music critics and they already, they, 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 get, get, uh, they, they, they hate you. Like, they're like, no, you know, zero. Like, can we get negative review points to that? I mean, sometimes certain people thought, yeah, this is great, this is the best record of the month or something. But there, there was always this little bit like, hey, don't have the, this, this heavy music history on your shoulders. Sometimes you need it. <laughs> shake it off and you know don't take these icons too serious from the past you know so it's this was also part of what was going on at the time that that and i was i, I did this at the, at the same time i did this record this mashup record uh, the Alec empire versus Elvis presley which was more like a bootleg fun thing i mean I, I did this actually just for myself to play to my girlfriend at the time who was an elvis fan and i watched all elvis movies like over 30 or something in one go for like two weeks i was totally uh, you know i was like this is i mean i was never an elvis presley fan i have to add that i didn't even listen to the records and I was like, okay, I take all these samples, and I made this, these tracks. It was all like kind of break chord stuff, like really weird programming, and all the his the Elvis songs were like time stretch and very, I mean, it's it's like a, a a very strange record looking back now. But I went to Australia to do some shows with the Titanic Riot. 
um, I gave a, a DJ that he really loved this. He was like, I need the, the burnt CDR and I've left it with him. And then a year later I was in New York and I saw uh, uh, these bootleg vinyl records in, in record stores. And I was like, uh, where does this come from? Some Mexican label pressed this. And, and I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I need to buy some <laughs> for myself. And so my girlfriend split up. Like she was angry, like totally angry. She's like, how can you do this to Elvis? And I, I was, um, but the interesting thing was it was record of the week and New Musical Express, the, the British uh, new, uh, music uh, newspaper at the time. So there was a certain recognition. I mean, then there was a, a sort of video being done uh, uh, for some uh, music show on MTV, I think, and that ended up in MoMA a few years later. Um, in the Museum of Modern yeah, Art in yes, New York. Yeah. As this early mashup, whatever, I, don't know, I forgot the definition, but I was like, okay, this is how sometimes things go. And certain people from more from the art world, they, this is why they even speak to me, you know. Before that, they would go, who is this punk? You know, like, to which university did he go? <laughs> but then it's like, oh, wait, he has this... Ah, this was one of these early things. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, so sometimes people need that stamp of approval, but don't try to go for that because you can't this is something that's maybe out of your control and this is a very good example of how crazy things sometimes can go um, you just spoke about sort of like the hacker community in berlin and i think that's also a very um a very particular um characteristic characteristic i think you said about berlin is that there are so many um software companies here like a lot of the daw like doors are actually German, like Logic and Cubase and Pro Tools and all those things sort of go back to, you know, just a few people who started making that here and now with um, a lot of other companies like Native Instruments and Ableton being here. How how close were you to those developments? Did you did did you mm. just like beta test stuff or did mm. you do you care about it at all? No, I think I mean not this stuff, like because I stuck to the Atari computer during the nineties. And then, I mean, I start, we actually started using uh, hardware recording, um, like, like uh, for example, the early Pro Tools with, like, I think it had four and then eight tracks, audio tracks you could have. Um, when, I, I think what you're describing is really... 2000 onwards, yes. uh, also where I wasn't really in Berlin at the time so much. I was never such a fan of the studio inside the laptop. Um, I, I felt this was um, sort of like leading to sort of conf like a, um, how can I say this, to a sound where everything sounds very similar. You know what I mean? Because I think now we have, maybe we left that that phase again like since a few years so it's getting better but at the time a lot of the glitch uh, clicks and cuts stuff and I felt okay people are using the same software you could hear it immediately my personal opinion was that I didn't like the sound in general like it was not physical enough and I think I mean well, 
we can do this uh, uh, today. Like we could hook up an 808, a real 808 uh, drum machine and, and anything that comes from your laptop and the 808 will, will sound like heavy and big and the laptop will sound a little bit smaller. Maybe at some point, maybe it will sound the same, but so far it isn't. And for me, the physical, um, physical impact of sound is very important. And I would say that I'm pretty so, sure so I know I people who would argue that and who would say that now the laptop sounds just a bit, if you have the right sound they card, don't not have, with like they, my mini check output. But, you know, they, yeah. they could, they, um, they have two problems maybe. They have one of two. Either their ears are not trained well or what's in between the ears is not. It's not trained. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a physical fact. That doesn't mean you shouldn't If, uh, you know, try and, and work on that stuff and get it better because we also have a lot of advantages from the technology. But I think, okay, going back to the hacker, uh, to the link to the hacker scene, one thing I think that, that musicians should never buy into is that the latest gear is the best. This is something that, that, does, that's, that we are in music here, okay? Like this is... We talk about music. Somebody can use an, a Gibson guitar from the 50s and can write an amazing piece of music. Um, so that's, that's a trap, I think. Like, so a lot of times people go, okay, but this is, we are doing electronic music, so always the latest thing will be the best. That's, I, I really would question that. that. That can be true, but it can also be not true. Um, And then you get to American dubstep and everybody suddenly agrees with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, uh, but that explains it. You know, as, as soon when some, something comes along that people don't like, uh, then it's the fault of the gear. I, don't, I never think, <sighs> there's a certain gear fetish. I think we talked about this before. Um, I, I'm, I'm not really into that. I mean, I use the Atari computer for certain stuff because it has a very fast MIDI attack and it only does that thing quite well. And there's an interview, uh, I think, uh, for your website, right, about the Atari computer because I actually see the computer as, as a key factor in the studio that changed the studio. Um, and I'm often amazed by the fact that people leave that out. I mean, often when you hear about gear, people talk about all kinds of sins and stuff but rarely about the computer or software for that matter yeah but it's it's like i think um it's really you have to master every tool you have available and you have to find these ways like to make it work for you and i think we know this it's very easy you have especially in electronic music you you have certain stuff like let's say a certain software and you start working with it or whatever and I think it's a mistake when you you treat it like almost like you're playing a video game you know I think we all know this effect you you go like oh suddenly an hour goes by what have I actually done what's the goal here well why am I yeah I have produced something but who was was that actually me or was it just the machine suggesting stuff to me in a certain way how would you get out of that Uh, you need to think about it first <laughs> before you before you I mean I, I think you need to leave room for experiments I think that's that's uh, always do that you know but I think 
think about like what do you actually want to do what what, what to just people who randomly do trial and error stuff uh, i think it often leads to to bad music uh, it's sometimes they can hit on something but well like the chance if if we dug holes outside this building in the ground and we find find oil or gold we could try that forever and maybe we find something you know but <laughs> you should be a bit smarter than that you know you can save some time um we've soon talked for almost two hours and oh, so i i um one and a half about yeah a bit more than that um i want to open it up to questions in a bit um there's a lot of things that you've done that we've um, left out. Atari Teenage Riot split the, the, up. The good stuff you left out. You um, we're going to... No, no, no. I am going to play like a new thing. live recordings <laughs> that nobody... Okay. Well, yeah. But we want to play stuff that maybe people don't come across that easily. Um, but still, Atari Teenage Riot um, split up. Uh, one band member passed away, Carl Crack, in, I think, 2001. And then you reformed, you worked with, as a producer with, for example, Patrick Wolf, and you did many solo recordings and also you did film stuff. And so I want to play um, a part of the OST of Vault. Ah, okay. Um, okay. The, the victims thing. Okay. of authority okay, yeah, that's video. A, yeah, that's a sort of clip that was done, that the, the, the soundtrack came out as a vinyl record uh, early on in the year. And uh, this clip was done from footage from the film. So it's not a scene from the film you see. It's sort of like a, I mean, I wouldn't call it a music video, but it's just so you know what you're watching. It's This is stuff from the movie and uh, with music from the soundtrack, but it's actually not matched what's happening in the film. <laughs> Uh, almost so strangely full circle with the video that we watched in the beginning. Is it? Um, a lot of German police uniforms <laughs> in, oh, okay. in today's talk. Yeah. But that's coincident because the movie is um, about, I think, a German police guy falling in love with the sister of a French no, he, refugee. He, yeah. It's like... <laughs> this is the, the nice way to put it. The, the, the cop is... Is part of a raid in a, in a refugee zone. It's a little bit like a few years into the future, this place. So, and he ends up, um, he gets into a fight with a refugee and kills him. And this is, the movie is about like, he, he, he first, he thinks he can handle this and he, he's trying to hide this from, from the rest of the police. Police is very racist in the, in the movie. Um, as, I mean, not all the police, but the, his team, because they are just, their job is always to go into these, uh, to kind of like control these refugees and uh, they can't get any jobs and stuff. So there's, of course, there's certain crime and so on. So they have this very narrow uh, view of these people who live in that zone. So, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it, the movie was done, um, was shot in, in 2015 in the fall and I did the soundtrack last year um, in May and I think it became kind of like I mean people talked about it because it was like the first film that had something to do with the sort of refugee topic it was not done um, 
why this crisis was was going on but it was a little bit earlier but i think because of that link uh, and also of course a lot of people were angry uh, some critics were saying you know of course the police is all racist again but it's like that's the story you know nobody said every policeman is racist it's just part of the reason why he in the fight with the refugee, he goes that one step further and he later on actually regrets it, even though in the beginning he felt like, okay, yeah, well, I had to do what I had to do. I mean, it's more about this inner conflict, like where do you actually draw the line? You, you're part of a certain authority, you wear this uniform, you know, you have certain orders, but you also should have some sort of responsibility for your own actions, you know? So, so it's interesting. Uh, Tarek Eli, um, uh, the director, did this film, so... And you worked sort of with the... Like you as a... Usually when you write soundtracks, work with a finished film, not the other way around. Uh, yeah, I mean, usually, yeah. Like, I, I like it. I mean, this case, it was perfect because they, they were under real time pressure because they wanted to premiere it, I think, at Berlinale. But uh, the, the Munich Film Festival said, we want this because of this theme, or this, the topic. So, and he was calling me up and said, I actually wanted to contact you in like three months or something, but we have like five weeks. Can you score the whole film? And I said, okay, like, wire the money, get me Red Bull sugar-free, and <laughs> it's going to happen in time. So. You like time pressure to work? Uh, in this case, I mean, what I like is, in, in this case, I had total freedom, like, and I think that's actually good. If When you know that somebody trusts you fully and you can just completely get into the story and 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 just write and you don't have to go through this whole procedure of like okay maybe there's another producer and he thinks mm, this is a bit too radical and, and, and you know and so <laughs> i love it like if yeah like it's um, it's t time is good you know like i, I think trying to reach uh, something within a certain time is, is fun like hey this is todd burns again thanks for listening to couch wisdom before you go i just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the red bull music academy the whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and events If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. Okay, enough URLs for now. Thanks for listening.